you may have uh, seen this on the on the site earlier, um, but this is another quote from uh, Francis Spufford. He's talking about Jesus. If you won't hear the bad news about yourself, you can't know yourself. You can condemn yourself to the maintenance of an exhausting illusion, a false front to yourself which keeps out doubt and with it hope, change, nourishment, breath, life. If you won't hear the bad news, you can't begin to hear the good news about yourself either, and you'll do harm. You'll be pumped up with the false confidence of virtue, and you'll think it gives you a license, and a large share of all the cruelties in the world will follow. For evil done knowingly is rather rare compared to the evil done by people who are sure they themselves are good, and that evil is hatefully concentrated in some other person, some other person who makes your flesh creep because they have become exactly as unbearable as creepy as disgusting as you fear the mess would be beneath your own mask of virtue if you ever dared to look at it. Oh, it sounds a lot like what we just heard. Um, Join me in welcoming, once again, Francis Bufford. Am I audible? Yes? Thank you. I hear thumbs. I see thumbs right to the back. Good. Um, But that's the last bit of seeing I can do because I, again, have to take my glasses off so I can read my own handwriting. So are you all still there? Give me some (laughs) feedback. Yes. Good. At the age of 46 or so, I set out to write some Christian apologetics. This is one of those opening sentences which has so much backstory in it that you know that you're really actually coming in a long way, a long way through some some narrative. Um, and in my case, the 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 relevant starting point is that. I didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. I I grew up wanting to be a reader um, because it was what I loved to do most and I could think of no higher state of happiness than to be absorbed in an endless supply of ever-changing things to read. And my fantasy job as a child was to be paid to read things when I was growing up, which struck me as being like um, like being a taster in a chocolate factory. You'd just sit there and people would pass an unending series of wonderful things to read under your nose. Um, and I, you know, I went to college, I grew up, I didn't actually abandon this, um, this, this professional ambition. Um, and, and back in the late 1980s, British publishing was sufficiently gentlemanly and primitive and uncommercial that there actually were jobs as professional readers. Um, and I got one. And I was given, I was given 
a manual typewriter that looked as if it was part of the um, battleship Bismarck. I think it was actually German as well. Um, and a room in an attic overlooking a, a leafy square in London. And for three years, um, my childhood fantasy more or less happened. And an unending series of manuscripts were passed upstairs, in effect, through one hatch in the wall. Um, I wrote reports on them and passed them out through the other hatch in the wall. Occasionally, I took breaks for meals, and life was good. Um, but, but um, apart from the fact that, that, that the British publishing industry was about to change, so none of this incredibly impractical stuff could go on any longer, um, and apart from the fact that I wasn't actually that good at making commercial predictions at the age of 22, um, and I'm really hoping that they've lost the filing cabinet that contains all of those reports I wrote because they were confident rubbish, most of them. Apart from those things, um, the other thing that happened was that I started to notice missing books, um, books that as a reader, I really wanted to exist, but which didn't seem to. There were kind of gaps on the shelf where I could see that something I'd like to read ought to exist about there. And people didn't write them for me. And eventually it struck me that the way to secure the supply of these other books, which people hadn't seen the need for, although I could, was to write them myself. Um, so, so that is what I did after a while. And that has always been one of my main motives as a writer, um, that I can see that something you know, could be there. Um, and I can see how it, how it could be managed. And I would be genuinely quite happy if somebody else would provide it for me, because it is much more straightforwardly enjoyable to lie in a hammock reading something than it is to sit at a desk with a word processor chewing a pencil and trying to line the nouns and adjectives up to make it work yourself. Um, and the reason I came to trying to write Christian apologetics is that I got increasingly frustrated by the way that the public conversation about religion was, was happening. I mean, primarily in Britain, but I think here too. Um, we've lost the graph of the certainty words. I want that back. I, want, I, want, I, I may have that tattooed on some part of my body. Um, <laughs> um, because it's the certainty that was really getting to me. The certainty with which people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett were, were directing the public conversation about religion to the wrong damn place where all we would endlessly talk about is, is God's existence, his least interesting attribute. Um, <laughs> I, I can see that, you know, it is logically quite important um, and that if there is no God, then the rest of the structure isn't standing on anything. But just because something is logically antecedent to everything else does not, in fact, mean that it takes the highest human priority. 
and there are a great many other more specific things to talk about when it comes to when it comes to God and what we may or may not know, feel, believe about him. Um, and because the public conversation had got stuck on the tedious question of whether he exists or not, the whole thing had become grayly abstract. Um, and because the the, the new atheist megaphone had been you know, very loud and successful. The Christian answers to it had essentially bought their choice of terrain for the conversation. Um, people trying to answer the God delusion wrote about, um, wrote about why Richard Dawkins was wrong in his assumption about the improbability of this kind of God or that kind of God. Um, um, which you can see was very tempting to do because the argument in the God delusion is rubbish. But, 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 um, it's rubbish and it's not anything which, which, which any recognizable monotheists have ever believed either. But then why are we bothering to, to talk about it? Um, experience demonstrates that Richard Dawkins cannot be taught on this subject. Um, because a great many people have tried to explain over and over again that um, Christians and Jews and Muslims do not, in fact, believe in, in a God who is kind of part of the fauna. Somebody who is, you know, a creature within the universe, only bigger and stronger and smarter than us. And, and he has been told that lots and lots and lots of times. Um, but it's not something he wants to hear for the reasons that Jonathan Haidt talked about, it's not something he's ever going to hear. So, so my frustration was that the more interesting conversation, the conversation which actually had some chance of, of, of connection to people's experience of being actual humans, um, wasn't happening. It was being, it was being crowded out. Um, and I wanted to write a book that did that, somehow. Um, I've called this talk on not being C.S. Lewis because that, but because I'm not C.S. Lewis. Um, <laughs> but because setting out at the age of 46 or so to, to try writing some Christian apologetics, he was the figure who I found myself um, grappling with, having, having to think carefully about for several reasons. One of them being that I was a Narnia reading child and he formed my own imagination to, to an enormous extent as a kind of imprint on the way I think and feel and use language, which is just Lewis. Um, another one, which is because he is such a kind of prominent ancestor as somebody trying to find ways to do persuasive modern apologetics that you, you have to reckon with him. And another one is that, it, is that because as an apologist, Lewis makes it gloriously clear that apologetics is an imaginative literature, um, that it's something which calls for writerly gifts, if you can, if you can 
corral them together and, 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 and bring them into play. Because apologetics is about, among all the other things it's about, it's about creating for readers who haven't themselves believed yet, may never, a kind of virtual experience of what belief would be like if you'd arrived there. It's kind of, it's related to travel writing because it describes the far country you haven't been so that you can imagine being there. People don't set off on journeys towards destinations that they have no idea about at all on the whole. And it it's also strongly connected to memoir because it provides, it provides something which has the authority of the personal about it. It's, it's about the stories of ourselves that we tell. Um, and it's also connected to, um, to theological writing, obviously, and to science writing, too, and to all of the traditions of the literature of explanation. Um, with the imaginative burden that brings where you have to work out where your reader is likely to have got to at any point and anticipate what's going to be vexing them and exercising their minds just then and make, make sure you talk, you talk to that. It's, it's a conversational literature. And for all these reasons, going back and reading Lewis was a kind of essential preparation for trying to do it myself in some terms that that made sense for now and in my time and place. Um, and what I I want to talk a bit about what I what I discovered and why I decided that I had to do it significantly differently. Um, not being C.S. Lewis, that there are ways I couldn't be him. I don't have the extraordinary resources of, of learning and of saturation in the literature of the past. I don't have his ability to bring worlds of mythological learning. Um, I, don't have, I don't have that kind of biting moral vision either, um, and I just can't do with sentences the stuff that he can do with sentences. So, but those are straightforward. Those are, those are things I just can't do. Um, then, more complicated, there are, there are ways I wouldn't want to be doing the same thing as C.S. Lewis. Um, and if you look at his reputation now, um, you will find that for some people at least, the guy is toxic. Um, there is a particular line of response to, well, to the children's books, which is very prominent in England now. People like um, Philip Pullman, who is a, a marvelous writer, but who has spent his career as a, as a children's fantasist kind of locked in combat with what he perceives to be the malign influence of, of, of the Narnia books. Um, People for whom, for whom Lewis's imagination, um, you wouldn't want to do it because there's something, there's something wrong with it. There is, um, there is some kind of toxic bundle of, of the errors of the past. Sometimes Christianity itself goes into the mixture. Sometimes it's, it's more a set of accusations to do, to do with racism and, 
and sexism and a kind of cluster of mid-20th century attitudes. Um, and, and there is kind of a real problem there because those are serious and they are strongly attached to a lot of the things that have made human history kind of costly and destructive, yes. Um, and there's something in Lewis's manner which is, which is difficult as well because he was a guy so vivid that he didn't always distinguish between his ability to vividly represent the central Christian truths and his ability to, to vividly represent his own prejudices and to vividly represent whatever useful metaphor he'd, he'd come up with at that moment. Um, there's a bit in a book called Miracles um, where he takes an image, or he's, trying to explain, he's trying to explain how at the resurrection we'll get, um, we'll, get, we'll get new spiritual bodies and he settles into this, this horse riding metaphor which is clearly related to, to Plato's charioteer. Um, and he gets carried away with it. I mean, gloriously and beautifully carried away with it. But at the end, he's saying, you know, perhaps our new bodies, magnificent, sleek, shining horses, are already champing and pawing in the, stable, in, in the stables of the king at this moment. And you think, hang on, wait a minute. There are no major horse commitments in Christianity. <laughs> um, horses are great if you like horses, but, but you just made that up. But, um, <laughs> And it's still okay to be a Christian, even if you can't stand horses and really don't want a pony-shaped heaven. Um, um, but, again, not trying to take racism and sexism lightly here, but um, I don't regard those as a, as a kind of, as a, as a deal-breaking downside to, to the way he does apologetics. Those are fixable, History has already worked very, very hard to fix them, and they are, in any case, characteristic of his time and place. And I dislike the reflex that goes, we must judge all times except our own as so deficient in enlightenment that we can learn nothing from them. Um, I, have, I have what are, for me, more serious kind of moral disagreements with, with Lewis as a... As a, as a Christian, I, I am troubled by the way that, that he writes about evil, for example. Um, he has a kind of a sort of horrorized sensibility when it, when it comes to evil, and he makes it a principle of extraordinary activity. It's one of the things that, that lends such vividness and such a, stense, such a sense of the stakes when he writes about, about, kind of, about moral questions. But evil sucks. I don't mean that in a kind of sucks to be evil way. I mean it pulls. It's got a vacuum cleaner like power in his, in his writing. Whether he's imagining it um, I mean he knows they're all devices but whether he's imagining it as, as the personal devils of, of, of screw tape or the enemy who are closing, who are closing in on the map in the pilgrim's regress um, there, is, there is a kind of 
there is a kind of symmetry between good and evil in his, in his picture of the world. Yes, he's an orthodox Christian. He has certainly signed up to the idea that um, in all of the fields of paradise, hell is only a tiny crevice in the ground. But when it comes to the fates that face the individual soul, there is a kind of symmetry there in which we get to be a kind of a horror or a splendor and, and there's nothing in between. And they are, emotionally speaking, fates of equal weight and I, I didn't want to do that because I don't actually agree with it but more than so there are ways I can't be him and there are ways I wouldn't want to be him but but what shaped the book I ended up writing much more than that was that when I thought about it carefully there are ways in which it wouldn't work to be like him even if I could if we wind back to the beginning of C.S. Lewis's career as a Christian apologist, we arrive at um, the kind of the darkest bit of the, of the Second World War. It's kind of 1940 going on 1941, and almost all of the world is under totalitarian occupation of one kind or another. And the BBC write to Lewis, who at that point is, you know, he, he, writes, he writes some science fiction, he's friends with Tolkien, um, he's a very well-regarded teacher in Oxford, but he's not famous yet, and they say, um, Professor Lewis, we, we, we're wondering whether you'd like to do some radio talks explaining the basics of Christian belief to, you know, to, to, to lay people. Um, and he writes back saying, he, no, he doesn't think he'd like to do that, because as far as he's concerned, that quote... Um, That, 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 that starts too far on. He writes um, that he wants to start, quotes, a stage further back because he needs to create, quotes, the sense of guilt in readers. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what the bit that Ethan was quoting from my book before I came up here was about, that there is a necessary bad news about about human experience that has to be accepted before the good news makes sense. You can't be redeemed unless there's something you need to be redeemed from. Um, so what he said was, no, I want, to start, I want to start from scratch. I want to start with everyday experience, and I want to make the case for, for, for Christianity from nothing, um, and I will build it up through kind of the moral intuitions we all share, and that's, it'll arrive at Christianity, it, it won't set off from there. Um, now, I love that idea. That is the essential apologetic commitment. Um, um, and I look at my own stuff and I think, yes, check. I want to do that, exactly that. Um, and it's also true that he was brilliant at in those first radio talks of coming up with, with, a, with an ordinary voice, something which at the time sounds like a bloke, a man in a pub who happens to have extraordinary resources of learning and imagination, but who is nevertheless your recognizable next neighbor holding a pint and saying, do you know, <sighs> um, check. I'd like that as well, very, very much. Um, and also the counterpart to that, which is very, very difficult to pull off in combination, but is absolutely necessary, which is, which is an equally natural-sounding 
linguistic access to the transformed and the transcendent. Because as um, the theologian Theo Hobson wrote recently, the difficulty of apologetics is that it needs always both to speak in the ordinary language of the heart and to indicate and to indicate the potential for being changed that starts from there. It has to be another ordinary human speaking, and it has to point beyond ordinariness equally persuasively. And Lewis had that. So hang on a minute. I've just said three reasons why I really like to write just like him, if at all possible. Why not? Because... Nobody buys C.S. Lewis's apologetics in the UK anymore. They're all in print. When I say nobody, I mean, I mean sales in, in the hundreds. But his reputation as an apologist is now almost exclusively American. He is the author of Narnia back in, back in Britain. And if you look into the reasons for that... Um, it tells you something not just about post-Christian Britain and secularized Europe, but, but something specific and interesting about the nature of the difficulties, which I think here as well, somebody doing apologetics has got to, has got to face up to. But the specifically British difficulties are that, well, there is one recording of C.S. Lewis's voice from those BBC broadcasts, and you can find it on YouTube, and I, I commend it to you because it's very, very interesting. The reason, in a bracket, why there was only one recording of his voice is that they had, at 1941 at the BBC, they had invented magnetic tape technology, um, but it was made by a German company who weren't exporting just then. So they got... so. All of their voice recording happened on this incredibly primitive system made of steel discs covered in acetate. Um, and they had so few of them that they wiped and re-recorded whenever they could. So anything they could broadcast live, they broadcast live. So almost all of the mere Christianity talks were done by Lewis in person at the, BB, at the BBC. There's only one extant recording. Go and listen to it on YouTube. And, and you're going to have to take my word for this here. If you're an American, Lewis's voice, it sounds British. It sounds like masterpiece theater. It sounds like, um, it sounds like a guy in a bow tie. And um, God bless you, you seem to like that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> at least Episcopalians like that kind of thing. Um, but if you're British and you're listening to him, he sounds like the Queen. He sounds... He sounds decades removed in time. He sounds, he doesn't sound like an ordinary bloke in a pub saying, do you know? He sounds, he sounds like, like the voice of the, of, the, of the posh past. He sounds grand. He sounds on his high horse. And these qualities actually are actually there in, in the register of the writing as well. Even if you don't hear it out loud, on the page, that's now how he comes across as well to, to, to British ears. He's been kind of, kind of socially devalued. He sounds, he sounds posh and too sure of himself. Also, he argues. He argues all the time. He was a teacher at Oxford... And the sequence of mere Christianity is, 
is, is made up of him getting you to accept an idea and then going, oh yes, but, have another pint, um, this idea entails another idea. Um, the, the favorite turn of phrase in mere Christianity is, um, is see it this way, or um, put it this way, or, but now think of this, which is really quite bossy. And, <laughs> and I myself would back away from a man in a pub who went, see it this way. Um, um, both of our societies took what's called the expressive turn one in which we're inclined to give more authority to statements of feeling than of things perceived to be abstract or arid I've taken the expressive turn myself look at my objection to Richard Dawkins I would rather he was he was, he was talking from the heart myself. Um, and mere Christianity's kind of, its structure is all given by logical connectives. It doesn't matter how ordinary the voice is or was, given that it's trying to pull you through some kind of dialectical process. And Lewis thought he was starting at at zero. He thought he was starting at the kind of the flat dead level with no assumptions made and that, and that that's where he was building up from to Christianity. But if you read him now, it is extraordinary how many assumptions are still there in his sense of what, what the kind of, what culture degree zero is, 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 supposed, is supposed to be. It's not nearly far enough back if you want to get people's assent to the recognizability of, of Christian emotions. It still assumes massive culture Christianity. Um, culture Christianity of a kind which strongly exists here, although not everywhere here. A lot of this is relevant, I think, in, in thinking about how to talk to those parts of the contemporary US scene that are most like Europe. Um, there is a very illuminating remark by Lewis's friend Austin Farrer, who was um, an Anglican priest in Oxford and who gave his, who gave his funeral sermon um, and who wrote a very good essay about his apologetics for the, um, the, the first critical book about Lewis that appeared after he died. And he said this, the day in which apologetic flourishes is the day of orthodoxy in discredit, an age full of people talked out of a faith in which they were reared. When the erosion of orthodoxy has gone beyond a certain point, other champions and different arms are called for. He means arms in the weapon or tool sense. There can be no question of offering defenses for positions which are simply unoccupied or of justifying ideas of which the sense has never dawned on the mind. And that is a much better description of the, of the, of the contemporary British scene and I suspect of parts of the, of the American scene. It's a situation in which conventional apologetics with its focus on ideas and on 
um, proofs and likelihoods and, and probabilities does not have traction because all of those things assume a kind of bedrock level of adherence to not, you know, not agreement with the positions, but a sense that the positions represent something important, that they're still on the agenda of cultural conversation. Orthodoxy in discredit, but still there, still occupying a prominent place in, in, the, kind of, in, the, in the moral and cultural landscape. Once that's gone, then you have to start a lot further back. The relevant things then are no longer people saying, yes, what about the Nicene, Nicene Creed? Um, what about this two natures business with Jesus? Isn't that a bit incoherent? Um, for that, you can use, you can use the tools of, of theology in as, in as lively and appealing a way as you like. But long before that, if people now regard the whole business of religion as marginal to, to the moral life, not connected up to their moral intuitions, whatever they are. Indeed, that religion has no moral content at all, except of a malign nature, that religion is a byword for, for bellicose war starting, for forms of discrimination and hatred. Um, if, religion, if religion provides in the memorable words of R. Dawkins, provides reasons for, for good people to do bad things, um, then you need to engage in a different place. You need to be talking to, to a set of emotions which don't necessarily, to their possessors, seem to have anything to do with, with religion at all, necessarily. Um, and when I made a little list when I was thinking strategically about how to write about this, the list I came up with, this is only some of them, are that, that people think that religion is driven by the fear of death, that religion is some form of death denial, that, um, that it's a kind of childish pretense that we, that we, that we don't die. Um, and like all of these, like all of these things, it 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 creates an undignified role for the religious, childish, cowering, unrealistic, and a highly dignified um, and rather gratifying role for the brave non-believer who looks death squarely in the face. Ha. Um, next one: that 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 religion is humiliating. That it as we know, famous for recommending humility. Humility blends over into humiliation very easily in the minds of those who, who don't have kind of background in, in what the virtue of humility actually consists of. Um, and, and, you know, religion is about kneeling. It's about submission. It's, it's this revolting activity of, of saying that you're very, very small. It's, it's, it looks from the outside like a, like a kind of self-reduction, a way of making yourself littler, being worm-like, groveling, incompatible, therefore, with self-respect. Another one. Religion hates the body. Um, in comes a kind of incoherent 
incoherent mess, sometimes driven by contemporary pictures of, of, of Islam, sometimes, sometimes by um, people having been revolted by having seen a particularly graphic um, painting of a crucifixion once. Um, um, this, is, this is what produces that line which goes, um, you have crosses on your churches. That's because you hate the human body. You're in favor of torture. Um, there is a kind of folk memory to do with fasting and, and self-denial as well, a suggestion that, that religion is, is all about souls, which, by the way, don't exist because science has said they don't, um, 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 is all about opting for the imaginary soul over the actual body, denying it, denying it, denying it pleasures, denying it food, um, denying it well-being, um, down in the kind of composted mess here of, 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 of kind of cultural intuitions, there's probably a memory of some kind of early 20th century kind of pagans hang around in the sunshine wearing light white robes um, in colonnades, whereas Christians hide in the dark going... Um, there's one that says, there's one that says that religion is is about stopping your mind working. That it, it's a it's a refusal of curiosity. It's a belief that all questions are answered already. That that um, I talked about this a bit last night. That 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 religion is some form of, of self-amputation in which you, you don't use the, the capacities of your mind. Um, you can't, as with all of these, you can't answer these effectively directly. You can't, because there is no basis of common knowledge. You can't just go, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and go, ha, QED, because they go, what? Um... um and there's one, there's one that goes, um, religion sanctifies hierarchy. Um, this, is, this goes along with the horrible humiliation of kneeling and submission and stuff. One that goes, um, religion is all about a variety of powerful men in golden hats, stretching upwards towards God, the imaginary man in a golden hat, um, and that it's very old-fashioned and it belongs in a world where you did what your betters told you to, but um, I, as a strongly independent person, don't like that kind of rubbish. Um, all of which had to be engaged with and behind them all the unifying the unifying kind of emotional intuition which I knew was my main order of business the big one here is the I mean this is the insistence that everything is fine um while the world contains bad stuff, it's all far away bad stuff. It's the, the things you read in the newspaper. It's serial killers. It's child molesters. It's um, evil religious people starting wars, for example. Um, but none of that, none of that applies to ordinary us who have our sufficient life with its moral sense and its, you know, its, its goods that we pursue, pick, pick from the list, from the, the liberal or conservative virtues, mix and match. Um, but that in your vision of yourself, 
there is no need for redemption because there's nothing really that needs to be changed. And all of the traditional moral language to describe that is then perceived as invasive, as something being pushed at people which they don't want because activating all of those other things I've just talked about, because they feel that to accept any of that description of themselves would be to be kind of humiliated, to, to be forced into a state of pretense about death, to stop your mind working, all of, all of that stuff. I was, I was very struck during Paul Walker's talk yesterday when he um, read the bit from The Onion about the man, 87% of whose thoughts were guilty or shameful. Um, I was thinking that at least being consumed by guilt or shame tells you that your persona isn't the real one, that, the, that the, the mask you're wearing for daily use bears some kind of rather complicated, conflicting relationship to the stuff that's making you go, <laughs> um, when you think of the stupid shit you did when you were 18 and the other stupid shit you did when you were 35. Um, but if everything seems to be fine, if your identity is, is kind of braced to resist even that kind of guilt, if your learned reflex for the moments is, is, to, is to push them away, to change the subject in your, in your own head, then the news really has no obvious means of, 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 of ingress that you are engaged in, in a form of, of pretense, that there might be something more real to be than the thing you are at the moment. Um, so the, the job of apologetics that I found that I had to do um, still very, very traditional, was to address that, not by making people who felt like that feel as if they had been assaulted, not as if it was trying, it was approaching with kind of a menacing gleam in the eye and a tin opener going, I'm now going to take the lid off your self-deceptions. Um, but, but on the contrary, to offer forms of description where people could recognize themselves in them. The job of apologetics is to make people restless if they aren't already. Comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. The job of apologetics is to remind them of the truth of St. Augustine saying, Lord, we are restless till we find our rest in thee. Um, this doesn't involve pushing restlessness at people who are genuinely serene and tranquil. It involves finding ways to describe their state now, which the pressure is off, so they can put their hand up to them and go, yes, actually, that is me, and while I'm not a serial killer or a child molester, there are just a few things which seem to hover permanently at the corner of my vision, which I wouldn't mind having a language to talk about. Um, 
And the way to do that seemed to me to be through storytelling, essentially, through self-description, the unaggressive way of offering people offering people new ways of telling their own story is to tell them yours. To say, you know, hands off, really not trying to kind of get at you here, but, but this is what seems to be true for me. I tell my writing students that there are, there are two ways of being universal. And one of them is to talk about the experiences that absolutely everybody has, the genuinely universal shared moments of, of life. Um, and the other way is by being very, very particular indeed and to talk about the things that have only happened to you because everybody has a set of things that have only happened to them. There is a side door to universality there. Um, and a story can be an offering, a gift. Gifts do not demand that somebody give something back. Bit of a theme of this conference. Um, gifts are offered not as part of the process of exchange in the financial sense, but as part of the circle of mutual respect in which people stand. I, I once read a suggestion by Rowan Williams that it, it seemed to him that in the early church, as well as the big spectacular gifts of the spirit, there were also little charisms, not things that amounted to, to you know, the big stuff, the stuff that we now, we now call charisma, but just a ceaseless flow of little gifts of, of members of the early church to each other in the form of the stories of their lives, of the accounts of how they and they alone got to that particular shared point. You could call them testimonies. You could call them autobiographies. You could call them acts of witness. Um, you could call them the means of mutual recognition. Anyone who's ever had anything to do with AA or NA or any of the other 12-step programs will absolutely recognize this here, that, that stories, particularly painful, conflicted stories, stories which don't rush towards easy solutions, are one of the richest and most helpful things you can offer to other people. In the first place, so that they know that they're not alone. But because there are, there are patterns... Um, I'm going to read a little bit. This is, this is my eventual solution to telling a piece of my story so that I could, I could get people, I hope, to recognize it. Um, I would paraphrase it, but it would be less good because the great thing about writing is you can spend hours and hours and hours in a room on your own making it better than you could actually talk it. So if I, if I don't read it, it'll just be less good. Um, A consolation you could believe in would be one that didn't have to be kept apart from awkward areas of reality. One that didn't depend on some more or less tacky fantasy about ourselves and therefore one that wasn't in danger of popping like a soap bubble upon contact with the ordinary truths about us 
whatever they turned out to be, good, bad, indifferent. A consolation you could trust would be one that acknowledged the difficult stuff rather than being in flight from it and then found you grounds for hope in spite of it or even because of it. I remember a morning about 15 years ago. It was a particularly bad morning after a particularly bad night. We had been caught in one of those cyclical rows that reignite every time you think they've come to an exhausted close because the thing that's wrong won't be left alone, won't stay out of sight if you try to turn away from it. Over and over, between midnight and 6 a.m., when we finally gave up and got up, we had helplessly looped from tears and the aftermath of tears back into scratch-your-eyes-out, scratch-each-other's-skin-off quarreling, each time with the intensity undiminished because the bitterness of the betrayal in question, mine, was not diminishing. Intimacy had turned toxic. We knew as we went around and around and around it almost exactly what the other one was going to say and even what they were going to think, and it only made things worse. It felt as if we were reduced truthfully reduced, reduced in accordance with the truth of the situation to a pair of intermeshing routines, cogs with sharp teeth turning each other. When daylight came, the whole world seemed worn out. We got up and she went to work. I went to a cafe, writer, you see, work shy, the lot of us, and nursed my misery along with a cappuccino. I could not see any way out of sorrow that did not involve some obvious self-deception, some wishful lie about where we'd got to, where I'd got us to. She wasn't opposite me anymore, but I was still grinding around our night-long circuit in my head. And then the person serving in the cafe put on a cassette a few years ago. Mozart's clarinet concerto, The Middle Movement, the Adagio, if you don't know it, it is a very patient piece of music. It too goes round and round in its way, essentially playing the same tune again and again, on the clarinet alone and then with the orchestra. Clarinet and then orchestra, lifting up the same unhurried lilt of solitary sound and then backing it with a kind of messageless tenderness in deep waves when the strings join in. It is not strained in any way. It does not sound as if Mozart is doing something he can only just manage. And it does not sound as if the music is struggling to lift a weight it can only just manage. Yet at the same time, it is not music that denies anything. It offers a strong, absolutely calm rejoicing, but it does not pretend there is no sorrow. On the contrary, it sounds as if it comes from a world where sorrow is perfectly ordinary, but still there is more to be said. I'd heard it lots of times, but this time it felt to me like news. It said, everything you fear is true, and yet, and yet, everything you have done wrong, you really have done wrong, and yet, and yet, the world is wider than you fear it is, wider than the repeating rigmaroles in your mind, and it has this in it, 
as truly as it contains your unhappiness. Shut up and listen. And let yourself count just a little bit on a calm you do not have to be able to make for yourself because here it is, freely offered. You're still deceiving yourself, said the music, if you don't allow for the possibility of this. There is more going on here than what you deserve or don't deserve. There's this as well. And it played the tune again with all the cares in the world. Um, that was read recently by um, one of my wife's parishioners' friends um, who apparently said when he read it, did he do something really awful? <laughs> uh, um, really bad? Did he murder somebody? Um, well, no, the answer to that is just ordinarily bad. Bad enough to speak in the natural language of sorrow and regret and to feel the kinship it brings, that language, if you can find the way to let yourself speak expressively in it with all the world's other 57 varieties of sinners and to feel the easing, the slackening of the twisted fibers of anxiety that comes with ceasing to struggle so pointlessly, as our culture does at the moment, against the bad news about ourselves and our capacities. Guilt is not a good place to be in, but it is better than denial. And unlike denial, it is a room with an exit door, a door that is kindly opened for us from the outside to let us out into the kingdom. And that is not different from what C.S. Lewis said, um, but I had to find ways to say it which started in a different place. Like all of the separate lives with their separate Christian histories that lead towards the same door. That was my best try at it at the age of 46 when I tried to try my hand at Christian apologetics. Thank you. Okay. I think we have some time to, uh, to talk to Francis. Thank you so much. Oh, that was rich. Yes, Matt. Uh, to try to tie in last night and this morning, I'm wondering, would you say that the narrative of the creed has influenced your search for a Christian apologetic? It didn't provide me with the, the order to write a Christian apologetic. There have, been, there have been great meditations on the creed, and the creed leads you, the creed does have a narrative. It leads you from, from creation through redemption to, to church, our own deaths, um, and into eternity. Um, but that's not a narrative which starts where the readers I wanted to talk to are 
are at. Creation, oddly, is the most vexed and contentious place you could possibly start now, given that it is where the incredibly boring conversation about God's existence is, 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 presently, is presently focused. If you, can, if you can start talking to an audience of strangers about creation without getting sidetracked into evolutionary biology, you are a better man than I am. And I knew my, I knew my limits. Um, it seems to me that that the creed is part of the kind of the vital apparatus of Christian habit. I mean, it's liturgical. It's doing something with us together as church, but it's also one of the vital repetitions which, which kind of keeps us pointing in the right direction. But that's something you, that's something you arrive at, not somewhere, not somewhere you start off from. Sorry, I can see somebody's hand over there. First, I just want to thank you for your um, beautiful talks. They've been very inspiring. Um, but my second question, you, you live with a, a, preach, a, priester, a, I'm sorry, a preacher, a practicing priest in yes. the Church of England. What are the implications of this for, um, for preaching and for the preaching life? Um, it's the other way around, in a way. What are the implications of the preaching life for this? Because large parts of this book is stuff, I wouldn't go as far as to say plagiarized, but I certainly heavily influenced by stuff in my wife's sermons. Um, one, of the, one of the paradoxes of being, of being a clergy husband or clergy wife is that you spend far more time with your, with your spouse and in your spouse's churches than anywhere, than anywhere else. Um, um, so a huge amount of my nourishment as a Christian has actually come out of my wife's pulpit um, and is the stuff that she writes at 5 a.m. on Sunday mornings. There's an ocean between us, so I think I can exclusively reveal that she only ever writes her sermons very early on Sunday, on Sunday morning. Um, um, preaching is another imaginative literature, isn't it? An undervalued one these days. Um, it has, it has an audience who have turned up, who are already making some kind of statement of assent, of desire to belong if not to believe, or who believe but aren't sure whether they belong. But there they are, anyway, in, in front of the pulpit, looking up and hoping for something good. Um, and in a very short space, you know, can't substitute for the moral life of all of those people, can't substitute, can't, can't, can't create things in them, but it can, it can offer things, it can tell them a story of the gospel which can make something clear. It can be honest about a puzzlement. It can say, you're lost in this stuff because this stuff is very hard and you're not alone in being, in being lost in this stuff. Um, it, can, it can take the parables about which, as we heard in one of the breakout sessions yesterday, you might be inclined to go, it can't mean that, and find ways that you can be, you can be fed by those as, as well. It can... It shouldn't soothe. It shouldn't be mood music for our, for our self-approval. But I'm married to a very good preacher, so she doesn't, she doesn't do that stuff. 
Um, It's, it's, it's a ceremonial form of the conversation that, that we are always having with each other as church. It's, it's speech marked off, specially considered speech, thought out speech, speech with all the gifts of storytelling you can, you can bring to it. But it's only a special case of the stuff we're telling each other all the time as Christians. And there are, there are little remarks which are more powerful than any sermon, which I think, if you're like me, you think back to your life as a Christian, there is stuff people have said to you which didn't have to be organized and ceremonious and, and well thought out and with beautiful language, which nevertheless, just at that minute, was the thing you needed to hear. So, yeah. Sorry, I can't. Time for uh, two more, I think. Here, here's, here's one. <clears throat> Thank you again, and I'm going to do the terrible thing of asking a two-part question. Uh, Sorry, first... where, where are you? Oh, right here. Ah, hi. Uh, just the first part. It seems like in the way you articulate telling your story that there's an element almost of uh, confession sort yeah. of to that in the sense of the, sort of presenting some curious to know how the sort of the idea of confession maybe uh, if that influenced sort of your thought process in... Uh, creating the narrative, and then mm. secondly, to what extent in your book, uh, I haven't read it yet, looking forward to it, but do you sort of make transparent that sort of process to the reader, either in the introduction or throughout the story? I hope so. Um, the transparency thing. Um, as a professional writer, I have to be appropriately skeptical about, about how complicated it is that something is sincere on the page. And that is the realest, truest description of an actual morning of which, of which I am capable. But it is also something which occupies a place in a, in a wider kind of arc, a story I'm, I'm trying to tell. So, so, so it was put in there not ingenuously, not naively. It was put in there carefully because I wanted it to do something as well as be a, a true thing that really happened. Um, it's not a confession to the reader. It's not me using whatever random book buyer picks up the book as, as my kind of my sounding board. Um, that's, that, that is a piece of old bad news about me, and I would be far warier of putting in current bad news about me. That's my business. Um, but what I, wanted to, what I wanted to model there was that confession doesn't crush you. That it doesn't, it isn't actually some terrible process of, of the breaking down of, of the self to, to show yourself fallible and imperfect. That to be, to be lost at a moment in your life is not the end of the story. That actually there are realer and more solid and more patient things to be which you can only get to by discovering that you can survive the announcement of your own fallibility. This is one reason why that comes pretty early on in, in the book. Partly because I want to get my hooks into the reader and make them go, hmm, mm hmm, what else will he tell us? Um, but, also, but also because 
I do want to, to show quite a lot of journey onwards from, from there. I want to talk about the ways in which the Christian life puts you on different terms with that kind of crisis. It doesn't magically turn you into a better person. Um, doesn't stop you having fallibilities, self-deceptions, whatever, but changes your sense of what else there is there and changes what you, what you ask of yourself. So it's a, it's a kind of starting point. Um, I avoided the language of repentance as long as I could in the book because until I successfully defined grace by demonstration rather than by definition, um, about five chapters after that, I didn't want the... I didn't want the apparatus to get in the way of, of the experience. I wanted to kind of, goes back to what I said about apologetics creating a virtual experience of faith for the, for the reader. I wanted to, to build up on the page that self-understanding, that sense of, of, of why confession as a practice might make sense by, by producing then and there a kind of live example of it of it making sense so that rather than people going you're 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 trying to argue me into something they could go oh okay yeah i see that's what's happening i wanted to make it happen rather than rather than argue for it wow well i think that's actually going to be uh it for the q and a let's give uh, our incredible speaker another thank you Thank you so much, so much. It's been an incredible privilege and honor to have you, Francis. Um, 